Um, but this morning, I want to I want to start a four week series here um, in September, and I want to begin uh, by just sharing with you a story. Uh, this story was taken from the the New York Times. So that gives you an idea, New York Times, on March the 3rd, 2003. And, you know, I know that we didn't say anything about it, but we need to continue to pray for our country. Um, I tell you, the things that are going on and the things that are happening, it's just, it's un, it's unbelievable. And so we just, you know, we need to pray that 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 our country brings God back into the situation. I tell you, because it, you know... Um, it, I, I believe that if the country does not have the Lord in it, then then anything that anybody touches is going to turn to total chaos. And I just I just pray that we would um, be a country that that loves God once again. And um, I just think that we really need to be praying hard for our country right now. But this article was shared in the New York Times um, on March the 3rd, and it was 2003, and it's a pretty interesting story. It kind of goes along with what I want to talk about today, and I'm, I'm going to tell you what the, the title of my sermon is about partway through my, my sermon here. But this young lady, her name was Tamara Rabbi, and she was at Hofstra University. When she arrived there, fellow students seemed unusually friendly towards her. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but people she had never laid eyes on would smile and wave at her as if they were her long-lost friends. You know, and so so she she kind of was a little bit suspicious about that, but she just let it go. And as a new student, Tamara was caught off guard by this behavior. Goes on to say a, a few people said that she looked just like someone else that they knew. So Tamara just figured it was probably someone else from Mexico because she was from Mexico. So when a friend of a friend showed up to her 20th birthday party and could not stop staring at her, it was annoying but not surprising. Finally, this stranger, his name was Justin, told her that she looked exactly like his friend, Adriana Scott. Adriana Scott who was also born in Mexico. And as they, they as they talked further, other odd similarities emerged. Adriana was adopted just like Tamara, and they both shared the same birthday. Justin insisted that they had to be sisters, but Tamara shook her head and she said, no, I am an only child, she said. Still, she agreed to let Justin set up a meeting with them. Um, so that's what they did. They they first met over the internet. Um, I guess they were talking back and forth, texting. Thus began this unfolding of what we might call a real life fairy tale. Adriana, she was raised Roman Catholic in in a house with a white picket fence, and and Valley Stream on Long Island. And Tamara was was raised Jewish in an apartment near the American Museum of Natural History in, in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And so they, they, were, they had been separated at birth. They were twins and had been separated at birth. Because of problems with the adoption process, these two girls had no idea that they were twin sisters at all. 
They had no idea. They had been separated for almost 20 years, and they were only separated by a half-hour drive, <laughs> but they had been separated for 20 years and only, only a half-hour away from each other. It all came to light a few evenings after this birthday party. Justin arranged for Tamara and Adriana to meet. And so they soon discovered that they both were born in Mexico the same day. They were both exactly five feet, three inches tall. Both loved to dance and both used Pantene shampoo. (laughs) I use Pantene shampoo. (laughs) I don't have a twin anywhere. At least I don't think I do. (laughs) But it was when Adrian, Adriana sent a picture of herself that the wonder fully hit, and the picture was of Adriana, but it was Tamara all over again. The only difference that separated them was a little bit of a birthmark on Tamara's eyebrow. So the twins agreed to meet the following Sunday at McDonald's in the parking lot at Hofstra University there, and um, which was really kind of worlds away from the Mexican hospital that they had both been born together in. You know, awkward conversation, curious glances they shared. Meanwhile, their friends were like stunned at the similarities of their voices, their mannerisms, everything. And here these two young ladies had been separated for 20 years. So after lunch, they they went to each other's homes to meet their mothers and their families, both of whom reacted the same way. Jaws dropped, you know, they stared wide-eyed and were overwhelmed by the the family resemblance, the family resemblance that they shared. Radically different upbringings and experiences could not erase the obvious that was taking place here because they shared, they shared a common DNA that connected them to one another. And so they, they couldn't separate that. Today, both sisters have graduated college with degrees in psychology. They spend a lot of time together and a lot of time with one another. They, they, they just enjoy one another. They have 20 years to make up for, don't they? You know, stories like this, I think it's kind of interesting how many stories are like this on the Internet. If you ever get a chance to to um, look at some stories of people who were separated at birth, that maybe even twins that were separated at birth, It's interesting because stories like this kind of grip us. They really do. But even more amazing than this story of Tamara and Adriana, I think, is the incredible true story of how the spiritual DNA of the Heavenly Father renovates, shapes, and directs the lives of those who truly are His children by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? We all share a common DNA. And when Marvin, I don't mean to pick on you, Marvin. I'm not picking on you. I'm just pointing you out here. Marvin shares the same DNA with, with us here. And, and Marvin told us this morning that, you know, he might have six months to live. He has a, he, he has a aneurysm and just don't know. But you know what? We're all terminal. We just don't know when that day is going to be. We just don't know. But you know what's really great? Is that we all have the same DNA from the Heavenly Father. In fact, 
the, the New Testament, the, the language of the New Testament makes it plain that at the point when we made, we were made sons and daughters of God by faith in, the, in His Son, His Son's death and burial and resurrection for us, this, this radical, and I want to say it, it is a radical inward change begins in us. Or at least it should. This, this inward change is so pervasive and so decisive and so certain that the New Testament fully expects every Christian will be very different from the world. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us something about that. He says over in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, this is what he says. Romans 12, 1 and 2, he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer, in, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will for us. Wow. If you claim to be a Christian this morning, prove it, the Bible says. Prove it. That's what the Bible tells us. Prove it. How do I prove it? How do you prove it? You prove it by this transformed life. You prove it by the change or a life that is changing. We know that we haven't arrived yet. We won't do that until we step across the threshold into our Lord's arms. But we should be transformed and we should continually be transformed and a life changing. For Christians... Habits will be reformed into different directions. Language will get cleaned up. And I want to tell you, that was one of the hardest things for me as a, as a, as a Christian, because as a young and I, I was bad and I said bad things and I did things. I, I grew up in a non-Christian household and it wasn't until I came to camp and it was with Johnny and, and Jerry and, and then they really demented me. You know, it was like, I mean, majorly. But, you know, but if we're, if we're truly the, the, the people that God wants us to be, these things are going to be reformed. They're going to be transformed. Our language is going to change. It's going to clean up. Impulses towards self-centeredness and self-promoting and, and self-citing pursuits are going to, they're going to be overhauled. You know, there is a sense of, of wrongdoing in a Christian when he or she tries to satisfy the needs of the world. And, and, and that's what we call guilt. And God, and it should be godly guilt. There is a, there's a, a shift from living for the body to living for Jesus Christ and His kingdom when we are transformed, when we are immersed into Christ, when, when we, when we take that step, we should be different from the world, shouldn't we? Absolutely different. Th- these changes, these transformations, they're not negotiable. Are you getting, they're, they're, they're not negotiable. They're, they're, they're necessary for the flow from, from the kinship of Christ. It's necessary. They are, I, I believe anyway, they are the natural byproduct of belonging to God's family, to having that DNA that God has instilled within us. And you can hear this deep inward change hinted at 
in the passage in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel shares this, he shares in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, he says this. This is where the, the Old Testament prophet foresees the saving work of Jesus Christ in these breathtaking words. He says this, he says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. He says, I will remove your, your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. He says, I will, I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and, and carefully observe my, observe my ordinances. That's what he tells us. He's going to take this heart of stone out of us and he's going to put a heart of flesh in us. That's the promise that he gives us. And I believe that that is the, the saving work of Jesus Christ when we are transformed, when we have that new DNA in our life. New heart, new spirit, new ability to obey. Does anyone talk about this in the New Testament at all? Of course they do. <laughs> I wouldn't have asked you that question if I didn't say, if I didn't think that someone talked about it because Jesus talks about it. In John chapter three, verse three, Jesus was sought out covertly by a leader in the Jewish Sanhedrin who had some questions and Jesus sets forth this 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 great need for all of us. He says in John 3, 3, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Who's he talking to there? Talking to Nicodemus, right? Because if you go on in verse 7, it says, Jesus gets personal with Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. This is the language of a, of a new kind of life. It's a new DNA. Birth introduces me to a family to which I belong. And Marvin doesn't have to go through this by himself because he has a new DNA and he's part of a family. And we all need to gather around our brothers and sisters in Christ in times of crisis like this. Birth introduces me to a family to which I belong. I, I don't, I don't get to vote on the color of my hair, which is more gray than it is anything now. I don't get, I don't get to vote on that. I mean, I can have someone color it, but it's, you know, it's still going to be gray eventually again. You know, I don't get to, I don't get to vote on the features of my face. You know, I am the son of my father and my mother. You know, birth also drives home the fact that it wasn't my doing, but God's. You know, new birth means new life, new purpose, new meaning, new power. Amen? And that should excite us. That should excite us. This, in turn, I believe, creates a, a new way of thinking, a new kind of behaving and speaking. It is a transformation. A metamorphosis. That's what it is. So what are we to make of the fact that the Barna Group, the Barna Group is a research group for Christian researchers that does. And the Barna, it, it, it researches on trends among professing Christians nationwide. And the Barna Group reported this, that born-again Christians are just as likely to divorce as are non-Christians. Or how are we to 
process the report about evangelicals by Ron Sider in his book, The Scandal of Evangelical Conscience. And he says there, why are Christians living just like the rest of the world? Which asserts that only 9% of Christians tithe. And of the 12,000 teenagers who took the pledge to wait for marriage, 80% had sex outside of marriage in the, the subsequent seven years. And I want to tell you something. I took the, our, our children through that. I took about 40 or 50 of our kids in our youth group at Newberry through that program. And while those kids were going through that program, at least 25% of them were already having sex. And so the Barna group, you know, they're just asking the question there. You know, why is that? Why is that? Barna still calls professing Christians in, in whom there is no difference from the world, born again. And Cider calls them evangelicals. But the New Testament is not that favorable of that estimation. Instead of assuming that that they are truly born again people who are who are permeated with worldliness, the Bible asserts that the church is permeated with worldly people who are not born again. And you know, and I, I'm not sure if that's true or not. But I will say this: Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter five verse seventeen, says, "Therefore." If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. So we can't continue to live the way we did in our past. And that's unfortunate because a lot of us like to grab a hold of those things. I'm going to talk about that later. So this morning and then the next few weeks, I want to talk about what a real Christian is supposed to look like. Um, we, we are going to hold up the mirror of God's word and do what Second Corinthians thirteen five says. We're, we're going to do. We're going. We're going. It, it exhorts us: test yourselves. He says to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, and see that's how we grow by testing ourselves, examining ourselves to know that you know if I've been a Christian for thirty five years. I better be more mature and, and uh, further along on the road than I was when I first became a Christian. And it's all about discipleship. It's about learning. It's about being in the Word. It's about all of those things combined together. <clears throat> but he says, you know, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. So we, we, what we're going to do is we we will look at the power that produces this change and measure our growth to see how we're doing. We're also going to see what it means when we keep falling and failing because we do, we all do. I want to invite you to take a trip with me in this series that we call it Transformation. If I'm supposed to fly like a butterfly, then why am I still crawling like a worm? That's the title of my sermon, my message but it's transformed, transformed. If I'm supposed to fly like a butterfly, then why am I still crawling like a worm? And so this morning, I want to leave you with this powerful call from Ephesians chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I want you to look at that. Ephesians 4, 1. 
Here's what it says. It says, I therefore, now notice, therefore, I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. See, Paul opens up Ephesians 4 there with this exhortation, with a reminder to his readers that he is in jail because he has practiced what this verse describes. He holds out his chains to us and says, this truth is worth being imprisoned for. It is worth dying for. Remember what he said? Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what he tells us. And so he's telling us that this truth is worth being imprisoned for. It's worth giving my life up for it. That's what he tells us. And so he also adds the connecting word, therefore. We know what that means. Which tells us that what he is about to write is based upon the preceding things that he has already written to us. Therefore means based upon Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. He says, I strongly exhort you to walk worthy. That's what he tells us. So to expand a little further, it means something like this. Do you believe, and this is back in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, do you believe that as a Christian, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing? Do you believe that? Okay. Do you believe that God loved you so much that he chose you and he predestined you to be adopted through Jesus Christ? Do you believe that? Okay. Do you believe that you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of your sins? Do you believe that? Okay. Do you believe that you have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit? Do you believe that? Do you believe, do you really believe that you were once dead in your transpass, trans, trans, thank you, sins, there we go, transgressions, trespasses, do you believe that and that you have been made alive in Jesus Christ, do you believe that? Oh, praise the Lord, man, we're getting somewhere here. Do you believe that you are his creation, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works? Do you believe that? Okay. Do you believe that you are fellow citizens and saints and members of God's family, God's household, his new DNA? Do you believe that? Amen. Whew. That's right. Do you believe that you are being built together for God's dwelling? Do you believe that? Do you really believe that God is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work in you? Do you believe that? Those are all the things that he just told us in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3. Then he goes on to say, therefore then, if you believe that, then he tells us, walk. Worthy of the calling that you have been called to, that you have received. That's what he tells us to do. So if you believe these things, Paul says this. He says, then then therefore walk worthy of this calling that you have received. 
And this word on which the phrase turns is this word worthy. In the Greek, this word means axios, which we get our, our English word axis from. And in Paul's day, the word referred to a method of measuring weight using a counterbalance. A weight using counterbalance. It's almost like picture a child's seesaw. You know, something is placed on one side of the beam and the word worthy means to add weight to the other side of the beam so that it ends up equaling out. That's what it means. It means to balance the scale. Okay, that's what it's talking about. They're balance the scale. Now, add that back into the verse here and it reads, Paul basically says, Put all that Jesus has done for you and all that you have received because of him on one side of the scale. Now, place your life on the other side of the scale. Does it balance? Does it balance? If it balances, you are walking worthy. If it balances, your life is fully expressing who you are in Jesus Christ. But I would venture to say that most of us are probably going to say it doesn't balance, Bob. And I would say that that would be the same way with me, that it doesn't balance sometimes. So, so stand back, stand back and look carefully this morning, get an honest, honest look at yourself and, and ask yourself, does my attitude towards my spouse, my guidance of my children or my grandchildren, my behavior on the job, my temperance behind the wheel. Get out of the way, you know. Move over. I, and I got to tell you, this one, this one was one of them that really kind of got me yesterday. I got so mad because I had I had a wedding to do, and I, I wanted to be there right on the time that I said I was going to be there. And I sat in that line at CVS Pharmacy because I had to get my heart medicine because I hadn't taken it in two days. And I had to get my medicine, and I waited for like 25 minutes, and I said, I can't take this anymore. And so I just ripped out around there, and I went around, and I had to go in the store and get my medicine. But, Lord, give me more tempers behind that wheel. I pray that. (laughs) What about my faithfulness to God in small things, my willingness to sacrifice, my words uh, to and, and about others, my involvement in spiritual opportunities with the church, you know, th- th- these all reflect what my Savior has done for me. Or have I settled for this drowsy, this, this television-soaked semi-devotion that the Barna group describes as where there is little or no real difference between you and the world? You know, I, I know what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for it is by grace that you have been saved, not, not by your works, but you got to remember, we will all be judged according to what we have done or not done. You can just look at look at the book of Matthew, chapter twenty-five, where he separates the sheep and the goats because of what they did or they didn't do for their their own brothers in Christ. And so we need to really we we really, we need to really be having this attitude like what what um, John the Baptist had. I like John the Baptist's attitude. Remember when he said, he must increase, I must decrease? Do you remember that? He must be greater, I must be less. Because it's not about me, it's about him. That's what it's all about. And I, I want I want to come to a place where my life 
from the inside out is pleasing to my God. I like George Muller. George Muller was from Bristol, England, and he, he knew the secret of that. He said, therefore, there was a day when I died, he says. I died to George Muller. I died to his opinions. I died to his preferences. I died to his taste and to his will. I died to the world and it, it, its approval or censorship. He says, I died to the approval or the blame, even to my brothers and my friends in Jesus Christ. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. That's what he tells us. Little wonder that it was said of George Muller that he had the 23rd Psalm written on his face. And I would hope and pray that we would all want to be like this, that we would all want to be authentic, that we would all want to be like Jesus through and through, don't you? That's, that's, what, that's what we're all striving for. That's what we want. That's what we want to do. So in closing this morning, there, there are so many more passages that talk about living or walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. You can look up Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to have those in, in the program on, online there if you want to look them up later. But Colossians 1.10, Colossians 2.6, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 12, Philippians 1.27, all of those all of those scriptures talk about this idea of, of, of basically um, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. I like what 1 John 2, 6 says. 1 John 2, 6 says, Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Wow. Walking worthy isn't for the faint of heart, is it? You know that. You're walking that. But it is for the born-again soul. You know, what, what we are unable to do in our own strength, God provides through the power of His Holy Spirit that's living in us, that we receive at the occasion of our baptism. That same Spirit that raised Jesus to a new life from the grave will enable us to live our lives worthy of His calling. It's all about motives. And I believe it's about this, these motives that I don't do because I have to. I do because I want to. You know, I don't do because I have to. I do because I love Jesus. Plain, pure, and simple. That's what it's all about. So if you're going to talk the talk, walk the walk. And that's a lesson for all of us, myself included, that we need to learn to walk that walk. Walk worthy in the manner that you've been called. And so we're going to talk about this, this passage over the next few weeks and talk about what it means to be transformed. You know, if I'm meant to fly like a butterfly, then why am I still crawling like a worm? We're going to talk about that metamorphosis uh, throughout the, this next month. But anyway... Um, join me as we close in prayer and then I'll have the worship band come on up and they're going to lead us in our, our time of closing. Father, we thank you and we praise you for our, our time together. I thank you for the opportunity to be able to present your word and I pray that you would just continue to bless us. Father, I pray that our transformation would be so so clear and so so evident that people from the outside looking in will say, man, 
those, those people do love the Lord and, and they are walking in a, a manner worthy of their calling. Father, I pray that as we walk away from this building today and we go in our separate ways, that, that when people see us, they will see Jesus in us. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.